All right. Hey, what we do not need this morning is just a bunch of words from another guy. What we need this morning is the living and active Word of God, right? Let's prepare our hearts for that. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Uh, Turn the attention of your soul uh, toward the living God. Hear these words about Scripture, and as you hear the phrases say in your heart, yes, Lord, do that for me this morning. This is from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord, they're trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The commandments of the Lord are sure, giving joy to the heart. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Because by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Heavenly Father, it's no accident that every time we gather, we place your word at the center of our community. Because people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Holy Spirit, let us hear your law. Let us hear your statutes. Let us hear your precepts. Let us hear your commands. Make them sweet to us. Make them life-giving to us. Let them bring us the presence of Christ this morning. The need that each of us has, let it be spoken to us through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Atacama Desert is a virtually rainless plateau spanning 600 miles of Chile's western coast on the western side of South America. It is the driest warm desert on the planet. Are you ready for this? The average rainfall is all of one millimeter per year. Anybody here been to, the, been to um, Death Valley? Raise your hand if you've been to Death Valley. 50 times drier than Death Valley. Death Valley is a garden. Welcome to Eden compared to the Atacama Desert. Some weather stations there have never received rain. Don't know what it is. Have never recorded. Evidence suggests that parts of the Atacama Desert received no rain from 1570 to 1971. And you think Colorado is a dry climate. 401 years without rain, men and women. Some riverbeds, we're told by the guys who really study this, this old stuff, some riverbeds seem to have been dry for 120,000 years. This is a desert, and the dryness and the consistency of the soil is so like Mars that NASA uses the Atacama Desert to test soil-gathering equipment for our trips to Mars. That's where we're going to go see whether things work. Uh, some parts are so dry and even unearthly that the 2004 uh, BBC film Space Odyssey, Voyage to the Planets, I don't know if anybody ever saw that. If you saw it, then you need to know that the sections depicting humans on Mars was filmed in the Atacama Desert. The Atacama Desert demonstrates well what deserts are all about. Places with little to no water, little plant growth, few animals, Few resources, and therefore few people, because there's nothing to survive on. The deserts lack resources for people to survive, or or certainly not to thrive. And the Atacama Desert, I use as an illustration this morning, as another kind of desert. Not a desert of a place, but a desert of circumstances, of emotional 
and spiritual and psychological and relationship deserts in which it's hard to thrive or maybe even to survive just because there are so few resources in our circumstance there. We might call these deserts of the heart rather than deserts of a location. And examples of deserts of the heart are when we travel through times of doubt in our faith or even our value in life. Deserts of the heart are when we go through times of personal temptation and failure in those times of personal temptation. Disappointment with how our lives have turned out. It's a desert of the heart when we go through relationship dysfunctions and stress and failure. And the loneliness and the anger that comes from those relationship dysfunctions. Depression and despair caused by being neglected and abused by others. A desert of the heart at that point. Physical suffering. Desert of the heart. Struggling with a lack of purpose. Welcome to the desert. Times of waiting, uncertainty about the future, or maybe an out-and-out hopelessness that the future simply won't get better. A desert of the heart. These and other circumstances like them can leave us feeling dry and famished and weak at heart as if our souls had not experienced water for 400 years. And this morning begins a three-part message here where I get to visit you and have the honor of sharing God's word with you called Life in the Desert. And our goal for this series is to understand life's deserts better and to learn how not just to survive those deserts, but we can even thrive in the midst of them. And the point of our first message here this morning is for us to learn some of the reasons why these deserts of life, of life are normal so that we can survive them and not be shocked by them. So the big idea I want you to get here this morning is that three facts tell us that we shouldn't be surprised by life's deserts. If I had my way, I would stand at the door as people left this morning and I would randomly grab you and say, what was the big idea this morning? And say, well, you were just saying that, pre- that des- deserts in life are not a surprise for these three reasons. So that's what I'm looking for you to be able to get. Take that with you. They're not to be surprised about and here's why. But before we get to that, uh, before we get to those three facts, I want us to hear an assurance of the big idea that deserts in life should not be a surprise to us. And this assurance comes to us from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, where he says this. Listen to dear Peter. Later in life, probably a few years before he died as a Christian, reflecting on 30 years of ministry, he says, dear friends, do you hear the affection he has for you? And for me at this point, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as if something strange were happening to you. There's Peter. In this passage, he acknowledges deserts of the heart can involve painful trials. And Peter's aware of the fact that such painful trials, these deserts, are doubly painful and doubly dangerous when they're a surprise for us. He's saying, don't be surprised, as if it's something strange. For something hard to happen to us that we expect and are prepared for, for one thing, gals, labor and delivery, you probably knew it was coming. Probably, I hope you knew it was coming. Probably had some training and and knew a little bit of what to expect. Was it still hard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody goes, yes, it was hard. Imagine if you didn't know you were pregnant. And you had no idea what was coming. You would have thought you were dying. How much harder is it 
to be blindsided by something hard without expecting or preparing for it. It might mean not being able to cope with it at all. When I was nine years old, I played Little League football in Arvada. And we all, all these little nine-year-old kids with helmets that are too big and sideways and, you know, shoulder pads that were this big. Uh, a common sight in these Little League football games, if you've ever seen them, is the football bouncing down onto the turf and rolling away because nine-year-olds can't hand onto the, hang onto the ball right? And so our coach had a drill, uh, a a don't fumble the ball drill, where he had two lines of these nine-year-olds facing each other in sort of the death zone in the middle. And uh, one kid had the ball, and he would run this way as the other kid would run this way, and he would hand the ball off as they ran by each other. And then the other kid would go like this to take the ball. And we'd do that back and forth and back and forth and just run the drill until the coach was pretty sure that there was maybe a 15% chance that we wouldn't fumble the ball when we got on the field. Well, one time when I was two guys from being the one to receive it, the coach came over to me and said, Brian, when Jeff Hodap, your friend Jeff Hodap, goes to handle you the ball, don't take the ball. Just tackle him. We want to, because Jeff's the quarterback, we want to see if Jeff can hang on to the ball when he's getting tackled unsuspectedly. And I went, okay, well, I'm not the hitty in this one. I'm willing to do this, so whistle goes, race, 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 and just like a nanosecond before I opened my arms and lowered my shoulders and took Jeff to the ground, I thought, is this really a good idea? Bam! Hits him. The ball bounces down on the turf. Jeff hits the ground himself. His eyes roll back in his head. Not only did he not hold on to the ball, I don't think Jeff held on to his consciousness for a moment. (laughs) I've never seen or heard from Jeff ever since then. I don't know whether he's doing okay. And there was some of us standing around Jeff and Coach down there. And I have to wonder as an adult when I look back on it, was Coach saying, that may not be a good idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe we don't do that. <laughs> Trials that we don't expect. Deserts that we can't prepare for. They knock us to the ground. Wondering what just happened And being surprised by deserts of the heart, thinking to ourselves, this is strange, can leave us lying on the ground grasping, gasping for air to go on. And therefore, it's important to realize this fact, that deserts are normal. And do not be surprised by them, as though something strange were happening to you. And so here are three facts about life's deserts that keep us from being knocked out and down onto the ground and surprised by them. The first one, is that human sin creates deserts in our lives. Human sin creates desert in our lives. Recall with me for a moment what sin is. Sin means to disobey God, okay? This means to have false gods in our lives or to worship God in ways that aren't pleasing to him. Sin means to treat people, including ourselves, in ways that aren't pleasing to him. Uh, Eve and Adam modeled the first sin by eating the forbidden fruit, and the result was alienation from God, alienation from each other, alienation from self, and pain. And, and all sin since then has taught us that the, this very same hard lesson, that to live outside the safe boundaries of God's commands just creates brokenness and addiction and alienation and dissatisfaction and sorrow. Amen? Every one of us could talk about this ourselves, couldn't we? Because we've all experienced it. Now, such sin and sorrow can be self-inflicted, something we do to ourselves. Psalm 16.4 alludes to this when it says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. 
And many of the deserts of the heart that we suffer result from our own personal foolishness, right? I mean, we could, again, if we had the time and this were the venue, we could line up almost everybody in this room and talk about our own foolishness and how we hurt ourselves. We know that good choices tend to lead to good results. We know that bad choices tend to lead to bad results. But either because of curiosity or bad judgment or ignorance or low self-esteem or just plain old bad rebellion, we choose to disobey God, to look to false gods for our well-being. And then we find ourselves in a sorrow-filled desert of the heart of our own making. Or sin that creates a desert in our lives can be inflicted by others. Jesus knew this experience well. After all, think of his life experience. People rejected him. They accused him of being satanic. They tried to trick him. They plotted against him. They arrested him on false charges and then tortured him to death. Sound like a desert to you? In the midst of a more severe desert than any of us has ever traveled, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment of anguish, he was in a desert inflicted on him by the sin of others. And while I guess that no one here has been physically crucified, Okay, we can move on from that. All of us have experienced some degree of emotional or psychological crucifixion at the hands of another. We've either endured neglect or abuse as children or deceit and betrayal as adults. And we all could describe deserts of the heart that were inflicted on us by someone else's sin. No one's exempt from such deserts, self-inflicted or otherwise. And the sooner we stop being shocked by these deserts brought on by the sorrows of sin, the sooner we'll be able to learn from them, survive them, and even thrive in them. So first reason, human sin, ours and others, causes deserts in our life. Second source of life's deserts is that the evil one fashions deserts to destroy our faith. He wants to destroy our faith. One of the most puzzling passages in Scripture comes to us from Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 12 where Satan gets permission from God to try to break Job's faith by suffering. Listen to this. It reads, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land, but stretch out your hand against him and strike everything he has and God, he will curse you to your face. Whoa. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're with me and have 12 or 18 or 130 questions about this passage, you're in in good company. What this conversation looked like between God and Satan in the heavenlies and why God would allow Satan to harm a faithful man These are truly challenging questions. But those aren't the issues that are instructive to us this morning. The point I want us to make from this is that Satan knew, Satan knew that people who struggle with suffering also struggle to be faithful to God. They go together. It's easy to leave our lives in God's hands when we like our lives. 
when we're comfortable, when our loved ones are around us, when our relationships are reasonably happy, then God is good. God is great. We praise him how great thou art. We thank him and we say, God, here's my life. Take care of me. You're doing such a good job of making me happy. Go, God. But what happens, men and women, when we suffer? Truths that we clearly see through the eyes of a happy faith become clouded. How can there be a God when my six-month-old just died in the crib? Or how can God be good when my loved one dies at the hands of a demonized terrorist claiming to be an instrument of God? Or how can God love me when I discover in my 20s that I'll deal with a debilitating sickness for the rest of my life. Or I just discovered that my spouse will be, and my happy marriage just became a long, draining, lonely trial of caring for a sick person. Where's that loving God then? And suffering can be like driving through life, DWI. You know DWI, driving while impaired? By that, I don't mean suffering makes us drunk on alcohol, but it does cloud our judgment. It does cloud our vision about God. It distorts our ability to interpret what's going on in life and come up with the truth. Living DWI from suffering can make us doubt the reality of God's existence, as if our being uncomfortable threatens whether there's a God in the first place. It can move us to rebel against God as if we're hurting Him, for not doing what we want him to do when really all we're doing is harming ourselves. How much sense does that make? And worst of all, and here's what Satan has in mind, living DWI from suffering can drive us to a self-destructive anger toward God by which we reject him altogether and subject ourselves to a godless eternity. And Satan goes, gotcha! Gotcha! Satan knows these facts about us. One, that the most valuable possession that I have here this morning, the most valuable possession you have here this morning is your faith in Jesus Christ by which your sins are forgiven, you're reconciled to God, and you receive the gift of eternal life. Amen? That's the most valuable possession you have. And two, Satan knows that the power of DWI living, this suffering, can make us throw away the most valuable possession we have. And so as with Job, sometimes Satan will inflict deserts of the heart on us in the hopes of destroying us. Men and women, please remember, you have an enemy. And he hates you. He hates you with a virility of hatred that you have never experienced because you are made in the image of God. And he hates God. And he wants to get at God by destroying you. Expect such deserts. Prepare for such deserts. If we, will, if we will remember we have this enemy and that he hates us, then we won't be knocked to the ground and gasping for breath when we find ourselves in deserts caused by this very real existence of evil. A third source of life's deserts is that sometimes, and are you ready to be stretched? This one's hard. God ordains or allows desert experiences in our lives. One of the facts we need to know about this God is that God has a thing for deserts. He really does. For instance, fully one-third of the dry land on the planet is deserts. 
Deserts are central in biblical history. God chose Abram, a desert dweller, to be the father of the chosen people and to begin the story of redemption. The promised land is a desert land. There were other places God could have given to Jewish people. I would not have chosen Israel. I would have chosen Switzerland. But he gave them this place that is largely a desert to his people. After Moses killed an Egyptian, what does he do? He flees to the desert where he spends 40 years herding sheep in the desert of Midian. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, they spent 40 years in the Sinai Desert where they received the Ten Commandments. 800 years later, when they were exiled to Babylon, they were exiled to a desert land and it was a desert experience. The first thing Jesus did after being anointed with the Holy Spirit for his public ministry was go to the desert for 40 days. And we know that shortly after Paul came to faith in Christ, he went to Arabia, a desert land, for three years. What is it about deserts? What is this God? He creates so many of them, and he has people spend so much time in them. Does he, does he just like to see people suffer? Is that what it's about? No. Actually, God's goal is to make us happy. But a hard truth is that sometimes the lessons we need to learn for our own happiness are learned only in difficult desert experiences. And so because he loves us and because he has our long-term happiness in view, sometimes God uses deserts to test and to refine us. This is uncomfortably clear in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Where through Moses, God says to his people, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order, that you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. And a, a, a manna that neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Note, God intentionally led them into and through the desert. A 40-year desert experience was his plan for them. It was no accident. Note, the purpose was to humble them and to test them. To humble them means to put them in situations where they couldn't completely take care of themselves. A desert where they lacked the resources to thrive and to survive so that they would learn to let him take care of them where they would learn that they need more than food and clothing and shelter and water. And to test them and to see what was in their hearts means to see if they would love him and trust in him even when life was hard or whether they would go with God just when he was doing fantastic miracles to get him out of Egypt. The Apostle Peter made the same point in 1 Peter 1, 6-7 where he says this, you may have had to suffer grief. <laughs> there it is. He says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter didn't use the desert metaphor. He used a fire metaphor, but it's the same point. Desert experiences are like the refiner's fire that brings the impurities in our faith to the surface so that they can be removed and so that we can be made better. Because it's in these desert experiences, whether we learn, whether, we, whether we're going to long for temporary goods of earth 
more than we long for the eternal goods of heaven. It's in desert experiences in life where we find out whether we want to be God in our own lives and call the shots of our own lives or whether we can submit to the true God as God. Desert experiences help us figure out whether we love anything more than we love him. And it's in the desert that we learn whether we're willing to trust and obey God even when life's difficult and especially when we don't understand what in the world is going on here. That's when our faith is tested and strengthened and purified. Notice too what Peter says the result is, that our faith is proved genuine rather than it being selfish, a superficial faith, and it results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's almost like the the scene would be something like this. Now, it doesn't say this anywhere in Scripture, but something kind of like this, where the redeemed are gathered at the beginning of eternity, and Jesus is there, he's been revealed, and he says, come up here, you, when you lost your child and you remained faithful to me, come up here, I want to introduce you. And when you lost your job and you were struggling financially and you still believed in me, come on up. And when you went through a terrible cancer experience and you believed in me, come on, I want to introduce to you the true heroes. Here are the people that in the desert experiences of life continued to believe and to love and to trust even when it was hard. And these guys get the praise and the glory and the honor. That's what scripture pictures of, for people who go through deserts. One last thought about God-ordained deserts. We might conclude that a desert inflicted on us by the sin of others was a part of God's plan to test us. In other words, we might hear this and say to ourselves, are you telling me that it was God's will for somebody to abuse me, to neglect me, to wound me, to commit acts of violence? against me. Because I need to let you know something. If that's the God of love, I'm out. I'm not interested. If that's what he let happen to prove my faith. Well, let me be as clear as I can about this. Somebody abusing us is not God's lovingly ordaining a desert in our lives for our own good. Please hear that. That's a desert inflicted on us by others, point one. (laughs) Or by the evil one, point two. That's a desert that God offers us that, the, the promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he'll comfort us and strengthen us in that desert, that he'll heal us and lead us to eternity where we'll never have to fear such abuse again. So that's how we need to interpret that. Well, let me conclude this morning by talking about living in Summit County and not being surprised by big snow. For 13 years, the Post family lived in one of the snowiest spots in the state. Many of you have been there. Keystone, Breckenridge, Silverthorne, Dillon. Well, we lived in Dillon. And the first summer, did you know what I just said there? The first summer, on July 2nd, it snowed seven inches. (laughs) The norm in Summit County is the snow covers the ground by late October. And you will not even see the ground till the very earliest of late March. You're walking on snow for five months. In Summit County, snow in June doesn't even get noticed. At 9,000 feet, rain just comes down white. That's all there is to it. (laughs) Therefore, people in Summit County are extremely serious about their snowblowers. I've seen snowblowers with six-foot augers chewing up the snow, putting it through a 15-foot chute and into dump trucks 
to remove the snow from the streets so that we could use it. Well, January of 1995, we just got hammered. I don't want you ever to complain about snow again. 30 days out of 31, it snowed. 18 feet in one month. And, of course, a lot of it blows away and it settles, so it wasn't 18 feet covering our house. But that's how much that fell. And there were four, there's four feet on the ground. And I had this dog. We had a four-foot fence. We'd let the dog out, and he would just go down the street because the fence was gone. <laughs> it was just covered by snow. I did not have a snowblower. I had a shovel, and for 31 days, I shoveled our walk. And by the end of the month, the snow was so high that I was throwing it up over my shoulder into the yard. And when you walked to the street, you walked with the snow at an eye level. I vowed I would never again be unprepared for snow, and you can be sure that we got a snowblower. And so it is with deserts of heart in life. Either because of human sin, the hatred of the evil one, or the mysterious but trustworthy providence of God, a desert is coming to you sometime soon. If you're not already in one, let's not be surprised by that. Not be knocked to the ground gasping for breath with our eyeballs rolling back in our heads saying, what just happened? Let's understand they're normal and why they're normal and be prepared to deal with them. I'd now like you to take just about 90 seconds and consider a few reflect questions. What kind of life deserts have you experienced? Are you traveling in maybe right now? Were you surprised by it? Or are you surprised by it right now? What caused that desert of the heart? Or what's causing it right now? And how does knowing that help you not be knocked down by it? Think about this for a few minutes before our closing song.